Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Chances are you know what Chuck Taylors are. You either wore a pair or, at worst, knew someone else who wore a pair. Yes, Chuck Taylor All-Stars, by Converse, were once the shoe. They are probably the most famous athletic shoe in history. Funny thing, though, most people have no idea whether or not Chuck Taylor was a real person. Well, he was. Not only was he real, but he has a pretty rich basketball history to go along with a terrific career as a shoe salesman. So, who was he? Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of Chuck Taylor. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. And what a great time to talk about one of the most famous names in basketball and athletic shoe history. As a new basketball season is just getting underway, why not talk about an historic figure of basketball and probably one of the most unknown figures in the game's history? While almost everyone knows the name Chuck Taylor, so few can tell you anything about him. Well, on this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back at the life, at least the basketball life, of Chuck Taylor with the guy who wrote a wonderful biography about Chuck, Abe Amador. Abe tackled the subject of Chuck Taylor and wrote the book, Chuck Taylor All-Star, the true story of the man behind the most famous athletic shoe in history, which is published by the good folks at Indiana University Press. Today, along with Abe, we're going to dispel myths Find out who Chuck was and just how his name ended up on this Converse shoe. Before we get there, however, just a little self-promoting. As always, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Just click follow and check out our daily posts. Check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes fan page on Facebook and follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Please send us comments, make suggestions for Forgotten Heroes you'd like to know more about by going to our website, sportsfh.com. It's quite simple. Just type in your question, comment, or suggestion and click send. And while you're there, you can learn more about any guests we have had on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Listen to past episodes or click on links to find out more information about the Forgotten Heroes we've talked about. And as always, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave us a rating. Thanks for your support. Back to today's show. Chuck Taylor is not 
the typical kind of forgotten hero we would normally talk about on Sports Forgotten Heroes, not by a long shot. While he played the game, he certainly didn't make a name for himself with his on-court exploits. He became famous for the clinics he put on. He would fill gymnasiums across the country. He created an annual yearbook of which, if you were mentioned or your college team was ranked in it, that was a big deal. When he went to work for Converse, he helped the company become a household name by promoting its basketball shoe unlike anyone had ever promoted a basketball shoe, ever. In fact, he did it so well, they put his name on the shoe. And here to tell us more about Chuck Taylor is a terrific writer and author, Abe Amador. Abe, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for joining us. All right, glad to be talking to you. Hey, so we're going to jump around a little. After all, we can't talk about, you know, everything that makes the Chuck Taylor story so interesting. And I think listeners are going to learn a lot. So first of all, Abe, where did you get the idea to write the book Chuck Taylor All-Star, the true story of the man behind the most famous athletic shoe in history? This was about uh, 15 years ago, actually, at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. I was a feature writer there, and uh, I was known, in a sense, for wearing Chuck Taylors to work. Mm. And you could get you could get away with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Things were already pretty informal in the journalism business uh, by the 21st century. And being on the features desk, you know, we were all thought to be a little bit kind of foo-foo anyhow, so we could get away with stuff like that. <laughs> but there were other people. There were other people at the uh, Star, at the newspaper, who uh, wore Chucks also. Uh, there was an old Marine. He was actually uh, never a former Marine, they say, but he had been in the Marines, and he was a copy editor. He wore Chucks. A couple of the young women, they wore Chucks. There was an, edit- an editorial writer who was conservative, uh, and he wore Chucks. So there were several of us on occasion uh, did... I read in the papers, some other paper, you know, business uh, business uh, report, that Converse was going bankrupt. Converse mm-hmm. was the company that made Chuck Taylor. And I suggested to my editor, hey, we should do a story about this. Uh, you know, they're popular. It, it's the death of manufacturing in America. The shoes were made in Lumberton, North Carolina, mm-hmm. the last athletic shoe at the time made in the United States. That was 2003, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, no, no, it's a business story. Let the business desk do it. There has to be a better angle for us. Well, I looked into who was Chuck Taylor anyhow. Uh, Was he a real person? I wasn't sure he was a real person, but it was, you know, interesting. He was from Columbus, Indiana. That was the hook. Chuck was real, and he was from Columbus, Indiana. And it wasn't merely that he was born in Indiana, but he maintained... uh, a connection to the state for decades. So as the Indianapolis Star considered itself a regional newspaper, certainly statewide, not just a local hometown paper, uh, I, I got the green light. Go ahead and look into it. So I did a story on Chuck's, met some people, learned a lot that I didn't know, and I concluded there's a book here. There's more than a story here, an mm-hmm. article. There's a book here. Lots of nonfiction books come out of 
newspaper features uh, come out of uh, even important breaking news stories and certainly magazine stories. You know, uh, a lot of books come out of Atlantic, you know, the Atlantic magazine, or the mm-hmm. New Yorker magazine. Uh, there, there would be more important books than what I wrote. Uh, it just it, it's a stepping stone to a book. So uh, I went to Indiana University with the idea, hey, we should do more with this. And they were all four. They had a series of books on Indiana uh, heroes. They didn't call them heroes, but, you know, major uh, major contributors to American society who were from Indiana and, uh, you know, had a book deal mm-hmm. and uh, had a lot of work to fill in the blank spaces. I did not fill in all the blank spaces, uh, but, uh, you know, I did okay, and they published the book. Yeah, you did. You, you filled in a lot of blank spaces. Hey, over the years— how many people have you spoken to or that you might have been in a conversation with and no one knew that Chuck Taylor was actually a real person or at minimum, they had no clue who Chuck Taylor was? I would say uh, most people, unless they've uh, actually read an article, did a little research on their own, would not think of Chuck Taylor as a, as, as a real person. Even in the book, I introduce it uh, as, you know, most people thought he was like Juan Valdez, <laughs> the, uh, the mm-hmm. mythical Colombian uh, bean farmer, or Betty Crocker, you know, the mythical cook for, for, and baker for General Mills. Uh, and it wouldn't be, uh, would be unreasonable for people to think that. There are all kinds of fictional characters, uh, even Tony the Tiger. I think people knew Tony the Tiger was uh, just a cartoon character for a breakfast cereal. Uh, but when you talk to people, uh, they say, oh, okay, he was, uh, you know, he was some old-time sports guy. So uh, they didn't think he was important. It didn't really matter. Uh, it, was just, it was just a brand name to them. Mm-hmm. So you sort of you, you, you touched on this very, very lightly just a moment ago. So I'm going to ask you this. Who was Chuck Taylor? Well, he, I say he was from Columbus, Indiana. In fact, that's where he went to high school and his family settled. He was actually born a little bit uh, south of that in southern Indiana in Brown County. Brown County is very rural. Uh, you almost could call it up south. It's a lot like Appalachia. Uh, very mountainous uh, for Indiana, which is otherwise a pretty flat state. Uh, it was the last county in the state of Indiana to get both uh, uh, plumbing, you know, to get uh, sewer, mm-hmm. you know, water mains and mm-hmm. sewer, mm-hmm. and to get electricity. And they didn't get it until after he was born. He was born in 1901. So he grew up in the proverbial log cabin, you know, even though it was the 20th century already. Uh, but when he was about 12, the family moved to Columbus, Indiana, which was a much more sophisticated city. Uh, they had some good industries there. They had a carriage industry and they, they had leather works there, and uh, they did some other things. And it was on a railroad line, which always helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he went to high school. That's where he discovered uh, basketball uh, in the in, in the high school. And uh, uh, and he was a good player, but he was not a great player. He he graduated from high school and he joined a semi-pro team, and he went on to play on several semi-pro teams. Mm-hmm. I say semi-pro. The word did not really exist then, but in retrospect, that's what you call them now. Uh, his most uh, well-known team was the Firestone uh, Non-Skids. The mm-hmm. Non-Skid was a Firestone Tiger. That was a brand name for Firestone Tiger, but they called their basketball team the Non-Skids, 
and it was a factory team. All the players worked at the factory. And uh, you really didn't get paid for playing basketball, so you didn't do much work. It was sort of like the old Soviet Union and being an Olympic athlete during the days when you had to be an amateur. Oh, interesting, interesting comparison. Yeah, yeah, well, it's true. I mean, it was a legal fiction. Uh, you, you, were, you were paid to play, but you had a job, you know, at the factory. And, and just like in the Soviet Union, you, know, you, you, you had a job somewhere, but really your job was to win gold medals in the Soviet Union. And the job was to promote, because uh, it was public relations and marketing, the job was to promote the Firestone brand. So the team was called the Firestone Nonskids. He played for some other teams. Uh, but soon, after about three years of doing this, he was hired by Converse. Converse was a rubber company. Uh, they made rubber shoes. They made uh, mm-hmm. rubber ponchos. You know, they said they made clothing. And he uh, sold the shoes as a former, quote unquote, professional basketball player. But really, it was semi-pro. Mm-hmm. In modern terms, he went around the Midwest. That was his territory, which he knew. Uh, he knew Indiana. He was based out of Chicago. And he sold shoes. And, and that in itself was not uncommon that you would have your uh, sample box or sample bag. I, I guess people still have that today. Uh, certainly uh, drug salesmen do that. <laughs> they go around. I mean, I've seen them in my doctor's offices. Mm-hmm, they just mm-hmm. walk in with a whole bunch of drugs there, and they're just handing it out like candy and, you know, telling the doctor what it's for. But he was doing that to sporting goods stores and things like that and taking orders. And that's how he made his living for a few years. Mm-hmm. Later, later, Converse actually started their own basketball team. They did not, in 1921, anyone to work for them, uh, have a basketball team. They had a basketball shoe, not a basketball team. By 1926 or 1927, he became the player coach of that team. And it traveled. And he played uh, you know, other semi-pro teams and other factory teams and things like that. And often he'd come to town and just play the local boys. You know, the local boys, mm-hmm. they put together an all-star team. And they'd say, sure, challenge these outsiders. Or sort of like a wrestler in the old days would come to town and say, here, you know, I'll, you know, beat me. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. put on a demonstration. And uh, it would draw a crowd. And mm-hmm. It was interesting. And it would sell shoes. So, so he started, though, he started back in high school. Um, what was the game like in he, you know, when he played back in high school, how good was he? I mean, several times you mentioned his passing abilities. So what were his strengths? What were his weaknesses? What was the game like when he played high school basketball? Yeah, these were, de- uh, well, let me qualify what I'm saying by that I was a feature writer. <laughs> I was not a sports reporter. Mm-hmm. And the book itself is not, uh, uh, it's not about the sport of basketball. I, mean, I have to touch on it and deal with it. And I had to consult some other pe- consult with some other people. But it's a biography of a man. It's, it's not a biography of a sport so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were, he played during the days when a, a route would be like a score of 31 to 13. You know, they, didn't <laughs> score many, they didn't score many points in those days. There was no shot clock. That was a big thing. But, I mean, they would pass the ball around for two or three minutes, and they would stall, and there would be no backcourt violation. I mean, if they just wanted to, you could stand anywhere on the court, and you could do anything. And you, if, if you shot, if you took a shot on the goal, and the other guy got the rebound, then the other team got the ball. But otherwise, it was it was almost like keep away. You, you could call mm-hmm. it that. And uh, so 
So no, nobody scored a lot of points there. Uh, if somebody scored six or seven points in a game, you know, he was, he, that was good for one player. Uh, he was noted as a passer, and passing was important. I mean, passing is always important, it's still important. But if you're playing keep away, it's really, really, really important. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so his passing was good. It was, he invented something that he called the invisible pass. Uh, it was said, I never saw him play, but it was said that he was just so quick with his arms, he could just push the ball out. And he'd be holding it, he'd be dribbling it, and then suddenly the ball's gone. You didn't, you didn't know that he passed it already. So he perfected that. Uh, presumably, he was really good at that. He was the starting forward on his team. He was either six feet or six foot one. That was a good height for that day. He would have been uh, one of the tallest or the tallest player on his team. And, uh, you know, in those days, basketball used to be a small man sport. Why was it a small man sport? Because you had to be fast, you had to you know weave your way through other people. It was it was really small ball in that sense. Uh, you didn't have you just didn't have six foot six or six foot eight. It was only until after World War II really that the tall man started to kind of dominate basketball and it became a different sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a person, he was a very gregarious guy. He was friendly. Uh, I could tell that he, he was loyal to his brother. His brother just impressed me more than anything. His brother uh, either was drafted or enlisted in World War One. You know, the U.S. was involved in World War One in 1917-1918, and his brother was blinded by what they used to call a flash grenade mm. in those days. And I'm not sure exactly what a flash grenade was, but it was, you know, you just have to use your imagination to think what it was. And he was blinded, mm-hmm. and he took care of his brother. He, he provided for him financially, even in his divorce settlement, like, 30 years after the war, his wow. brother was still living. 30 years after the war, his divorce settlement, uh, which he was very bitter about because he was living in California. So right there, you know, if you're a guy, you're screwed. And he was. He was living in California at the time. He said right at the top, the way the uh, settlement was written, so much money goes for upkeep of my brother. Hmm. Then we talk about splitting the rest of it. So uh, he was a moral guy that way. But he was a philanderer, too. So mm-hmm. you know, he was a good-looking guy, and he traveled a lot, and he had a nice car. And, uh, you know, like old sailors, supposedly a girlfriend in every port, uh, it, it is said by people who knew him that uh, he was very smooth with the ladies. And, and that's what he liked. <laughs> so you've, you've, you've painted a pretty good picture of what the game was like and the kind of person that Chuck Taylor was. Just as an aside, I always wondered where the name Cager came from when it comes to basketball. And your book answered that question. So tell us where the name came from. And secondly, talk about a little bit how the game differed on the court than from what we see today. Well, it was was cage ball, C-A-G-E. Uh, basketball, uh, an informal name for it was cage ball. And if you played uh, cage ball, you were a cager. Just like if you played uh, football, you're a footballer. You mm-hmm. know? And if you were into boxing, you're a boxer. So it's simple grammar on, on that level. But cage ball was they put up a wire screen around the court often. And that was the cage. You played inside a cage. And it, I think wire could have been. Uh, could have been some kind of mess. You had to be able to see through it, and you could see through it. And they did that to keep the ball on the court. 
<laughs> it was as simple as that. You know, to so the ball the really never went out of bounds. Yeah, yeah, the ball just was. Uh, I, I don't want to say there was no such thing as out of bounds, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, but you know, the, the ball didn't go into the stands. That's for sure. Interesting. And and you know, we watched the game today. It's a it, it is so different than from what Chuck played. Um, you know, they didn't move the ball. Like you said, it was more of a passing game. And I can't help but think about uh, watching the NCAA uh, four-corner offense, you know, back in the days of Princeton and all. And I would, I would guess that's probably as close to what we would see today as a, in, in a comparison to what the game was like before. So as far as playing basketball is concerned on a professional level, I guess there really weren't professional basketball leagues back then like there is today. However, there were, and I guess maybe this is where you were going with semi-pro leagues, the they would be called industrial leagues. And I yeah. guess they were as pretty close to professional basketball as you could get. Would you please explain the landscape of professional basketball for us, the industrial leagues, and how guys, like you said, were actually hired by corporations and given jobs, but the real role was to play basketball. Yeah. Again, the sport was uh, promotion. Um, and you can compare it to the old Soviet Union in the Olympics or China in the Olympics today. You know, it's to get prestige, to get recognition. Uh, to put your name on the map. I would compare it to college ball today. Uh, you know, I'm here in Indianapolis, and uh, Butler University had a few good seasons mm-hmm. uh, not long ago uh, with Brad Stevens, sure. uh, who's now the coach. Uh, Brad Stevens, there's a story there, too. Uh, but Brad Stevens, you know, uh, right now he's, he's with Boston. But the people at Butler, I mean, the administration there, this was reported on, they were interviewed. They were so happy. Basketball put Butler University on the map. Mm-hmm. People across the country now have heard of this small, obscure, you know, uh, it really should be a Division II college. But, wow, you know, they had a great basketball team. So uh, uh, going back to the Industrial League, these factories, these companies, they wanted recognition. And they weren't always sporting good companies. They, they often were, but they weren't always. Uh, Goodyear had a team called the Wingfoots. And you just have to look, you know, Wingfoots. Mm-hmm. You just have to look at their logo and to know why it was they were the Wingfoot. They had a basketball shoe too. You know, they they all look like Chuck. They're all canvas, rubber bottom, uh-huh. you know, rubber cap toe, things like that. They all look the same. Uh, to the untrained eye, you wouldn't know the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Electric. There was a General Electric company. I forget which where the home base was. They had a team uh, uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne. I want to bet with a sports writer. I'm not a sports writer, but I want to bet with a sports writer when I worked in Champaign, Illinois in the 1980s, where I talked about the old Fort Wayne Pistons. He said, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, didn't you know the, the Detroit Pistons that came from Fort Wayne? He said, what are you talking about? Fort Wayne never had a professional team. Fort Wayne, Fort Wayne, you know, it's like it's a small town. And I said, well, you know, Green Bay has an NFL team to this day. So, you know, it started when the sport wasn't that big. You know, that's when that's why Green Bay still has a team, because lots of small, uh, smaller towns had these these pro teams when it really wasn't that professional. 
ditto with the Fort Wayne Pistons, and, and, <laughs> and the Pistons were named after a uh, uh, not automobile pistons, but there was a company there uh, that made pistons for tanks, for military tanks. That's what they made, huh. and uh, and uh, I, I forget the name of the company, but it was the Fort Wayne thing, Zollner. That was a Z O L L N E R, the Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons. Anyway, they moved when the NBA caught on. Of course, they moved to a bigger market. Right. Green Bay is astonishing because they're still in Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they didn't move to Milwaukee. But uh, these these factories, including large factories, and then some large sporting goods concerns. Uh, the Knights of Columbus in Fort Wayne, concurrently with the Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons, they had a terrific basketball team. They just it was a community wide team, but they played in the league, and there were different leagues. The big leagues, you know, they came and went, but the major leagues, I say major with a small M, not capital M, mm-hmm. were in the Midwest and in around the New York State area. There were some leagues there. I, I didn't really investigate those too closely, but there were basketball teams in the Northeast. And in fact, the most famous basketball team in the country in the 1920s was not part of any league, but was an independent. And it was the New York Original Celtics. And that was the name, Original with capital O, Celtics. Nothing to do with the Boston Celtics. And there were, uh, there was a black basketball team that was very well known. The name would come to me uh, from New York. And then, of course, there was the uh, famous black basketball team from Chicago called the Harlem Globetrotters, Harlem Globetrotters. But they weren't from Harlem. Hmm. They're from, they from the south side of Chicago. They had nothing to do with Harlem. And uh, it, it was interesting. And these teams would play each other. You know, they talk about Jackie Robinson uh, integrating baseball. But basketball was integrated way before, you know, way before uh, any other organized team sport in America. And uh, while teams were – and by, by the 30s, I mean, they really were integrated. There would be black basketball players on white teams. Mm-hmm. But even before then, black and white teams would play each other. Mm. So uh, I say that's integration of, of, of sorts. Uh, basketball was not a major sport, uh, just like football before World War II was not a major sport. Uh, college sports were bigger in America than uh, all professional sports except baseball. Except baseball. Except baseball. Except baseball. Baseball was America's pastime. I don't know if you can say that anymore. You know, but uh, I don't think you can. But. Before but until the 50s, uh, really, just, you know, not many people, it was sort of like wrestling, you know, some, it's like wrestling to this day. Uh, some people follow it. I mean, people do follow it, but you don't consider it a, a really, I'm probably going to insult people. <laughs> you're going to get angry emails because people who do like wrestling, they really do like it. But it, it's just not up there with uh you know, right. basketball or football or baseball. Right. And, and, and basketball and football wasn't up there either once upon a time. So let's go back a little. Tell us a little more about the non-skids. The non-skids were a good team. Uh, you know, again, they, they played factory town. You know, if I say the word factory town, it has a bad name. Uh, and this was but, in Akron, Ohio, correct? The non-skids were part of really, Firestone, I guess. Yeah, it was Firestone. And, and, and uh, the picture to this day that Converse uses uh, on the tag that comes with some of their Converse All-Star shoes shows Chuck. It is Chuck, a real photo. And he's standing on top of the Firestone Administration Building. 
He's just standing up there, and he's got his F there. And it's a picture that he had taken that he sent home to his mother. <laughs> he wanted to show, look, I'm in, look, I'm in Akron. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm on top of the world. What a statement. I mean, that was it. I'm on top of the world. I left home, and I'm 19 or I'm 20, and I'm playing basketball for the non-skids, you know? And in the background, you can see, you know, sort of the skyline uh, of some other large buildings. They're large if you're from Columbus, Indiana. They're large if you were born in a log cabin in, in Brown County. Akron, you know, we don't think of it as being, it's a mid-sized city. Mm-hmm. Not large city. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the non-skids were good. They had, and, and and as a factory town, which is an exaggeration, I mean, it was, Akron's not a tiny village. It wasn't strictly a factory town. But factories took care of their workers. You know, they had uh, sports programs. Families could, could use the gym. There was a gym made available. Uh, they would have uh, kind of picnics organized for families and for the workers. They, they, they would do things that, you know, just don't exist to this day. I mean, you don't see today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. I'm reminded of here in Indiana, there's a big Subaru factory or uh, Subaru. Uh, you know, they make your Subaru Outback. Actually, they're made here in Indiana. And then, and on, and I drive by it sometimes because it's not far from where I live. And they have some baseball diamonds. They're really nice. They just built some baseball diamonds so the community can use it. Hmm. So Subaru is good for doing that. There was an old GM factory in uh, a town called Bedford, south of Indianapolis. And they, it was a casting factory, as I recall. So they cast pistons and they cast some other parts, you know, aluminum pistons. And they had a sports complex there that the uh, town could use. You know, it wasn't just for the workers. But, uh, you know, the workers in the town were one and the same, really. It was a right. small town. Uh, that, that's kind of lost to this day, you know. And kids either are playing video games or they're, <laughs> or, or they're, out, or, or they're out up to no good or they're out up to no good. Or uh, they're lonely, you know. They, but you don't, you just don't see. Well, you don't see kids out playing anymore. I don't know where you no. are right now, or where you live, but you don't see kids out playing unless it's truly organized sport. Yes, you're uh, you're, you're it's, correct. And it's a disaster. But uh, these things used to be, uh, you know, everybody, you know, everybody supported that. There was a more community spirit, even between labor and management, even between labor and management and the town fathers. You know, everybody was in it together. And man, uh, I don't want to get too political, but baby, you don't see that today at all. No, it's it's a different time today. Yeah, different time. Hey, let me ask you this. How did Chuck end up in Akron? How did he end up with the non-skids? After high school, did he go on to college? Did he play any college No, he didn't go to college. How did he he end up there? Yeah, he didn't go to college. He played for a Chamber of Commerce team in, uh, in Columbus. Chamber of Commerce had its own team. He played for a couple of teams in Indianapolis. And these were really local teams. Uh, one was a uh, bakery. <laughs> it was a well-known bakery. You know, the bakery mm-hmm. used to be important. Mm-hmm. You know, every town had its own bakery, you know, and it was a big deal, you know, as far as, uh, in fact, they had more than one bakery. So, but they had one big bakery that made all the white bread and, you know, all the stuff like that. Uh, he played there. And then he, uh, how he got, re- he played in Detroit a team called the Detroit Rails, R-A-Y-L. Well, uh, did that did that so, come after, didn't that come you know, after Akron? You no, know, I think it came before Akron. I think he played for these. The Detroit Rails was a sporting good company. And oh, they had okay. Their own team. All right. And uh, Akron was his last team 
before he became, as far as I could tell, uh, before he became the player coach of, uh, of Converse's own team. Now, and and he, Converse's he, team was up in Detroit, right? So, so no, he, no, no, no. Okay, the, the all right, so I'm confused here. The Converse team was definitely based in Chicago. The Converse oh, team was definitely okay. based out of Chicago. Uh, it, where he was based, there was, I was able to document that. I mean, I have to go back to my records to quote, you know, the actual citation. Uh, but the, it, it was based out of Chicago, and he just traveled through the Midwest, uh, as far as I could tell. I didn't see. I, I have newspaper clippings, but uh, they're all in the Midwest. All right, so he went, he, went, he went to Detroit, then to Akron, and then to Chicago. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the—I'll that's definitely the, uh, tell you, the reason why he left uh, speculation on my part, but informed speculation, filling in some blank spaces, he left Akron because a coach came and didn't like his place. There was a coach, and I, I can't think of the guy's name. I'd have to go back and mm-hmm. look at my own book. But it was a coach that he actually knew from uh, uh, Purdue University. Just uh, not that not that Chuck ever went to Purdue University, but you know, in Indiana basketball circles, the colleges knew who the good high school players were. And that guy became a coach in uh, Akron, and didn't think Chuck was good enough. And Chuck didn't get into a lot of games. He wasn't a starter anymore. Chuck definitely didn't. Chuck was the kind of guy who didn't like that. I mean, he wasn't completely arrogant, but, you know, it was an insult not to be a starter. And uh, because he was a pretty good player and he had been a pretty good player. Uh, And he either quit or was thrown off the team uh, or had to go work in the assembly line. I'm sure he didn't want to do that, you know, making rubber tires. So he got a job in uh, Chicago selling. And he, he could show off his personality, too. He had a lot of personality. And he could be a showman. And he could be his own boss as a traveling salesman. You know, For me, that would be a terrible job uh, to be a traveling salesman because, you know, you're always, not, it's, you're, you're always making cold calls, you know. And people often don't want to see you. It's, you know, it just, it's just hard. You know, reminds me when I was a freelance writer, you know, trying to sell stories that, you know, maybe people didn't want to. People didn't want to talk to me, but uh, uh, he was really good at it. So uh, it was a good move for him. Was the coach Sheiks or something like that? Sheiks, there you go. Thank you. You've read the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to prepare for the interview. <laughs> you did. All right. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Pop Sheiks. Yeah. Pop Sheiks. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, he, they, they, they didn't get along. There was some, there was definitely some friction between those two guys. Mm-hmm. So he left there and he went, he went to Chicago and he, he goes and he plays at that point, I believe for Converse's company's industrial league team. Now, again, in your book, uh, as I was reading along and folks get the book, it's a terrific book. Again, Chuck Taylor, all-star, the true story of the man behind the most famous athletic shoe in history. So when he got there, and and, and, and this was a little foggy, but did he sort of exaggerate his accomplishments on the basketball court to work his way into the into the lineup? Is there something about that where he talked about maybe that he did play for the New York original Celtics, whom, like you said, uh, not connected to today's Boston Celtics. And then he also talked about playing for a team called 
the Buffalo Germans. At least yeah. I think he said that. And, the, and by the way, as you wrote, the Germans were an exceptional team. I mean, heck, you said that they once won 111 straight games, and that's over a 34-year period of existence. Their record or they won 111 straight games in over their 34 years of existence. They're like the Globetrotters. They won 792 games and lost just 86. So did did Chuck exaggerate where he was? Do I have that right? And by the way, who were the Germans and what was his relationship me, uh, with that team? Let me say two things about the Buffalo Germans. One, uh, uh, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> <laughs> to go back and read my own book, that they won that they won that many games. Uh, the Buffalo Germans were a YMCA team. That's what they were—a YMCA team from Buffalo, New York. And the uh, it was the German Street YMCA. So they were mm-hmm. Buffalo Germans. Okay. Uh, I'm, pretty, okay. I'm pretty sure I remember that correctly. And uh, in the 1904 Olympics, which were held in, or the 1904 World's Fair, excuse me, not Olympics, World's Fair. That were was and I think it was 1904. That was held in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, it was a demonstration sport. The demonstration sport, and the Buffalo Germans uh, were there. They played. It was kind of like if you showed up, you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you showed up, you got into this, uh, you know, this world championship, uh, and they won against some other teams. I don't know who these other teams were. They beat, but they won. They were world champions. So that's how I, you know, that's why I compare basketball to like wrestling. You know, these, these wrestlers, they used to have all these belts, you know, world champions from this conference and mm-hmm. world champions mm-hmm. from that commission. And, you know, they had the belt. The belt was the, uh, the sign that you were a world champion. And the, so the Buffalo Germans were the world champions. Uh, some press releases uh, that I came across said that in some newspaper accounts, like three or four, said that. Chuck Taylor was a veteran of the Buffalo German Olympic championship team. That was weird because, or a world world fair champion team. team, team. He would have been three years old. He would have been three years old. Three years old. What are you talking about? I mean, where where did that come from? You know, Uh, I remember talking to John Wooden. John Wooden was uh, good friends with Chuck. They had a, they had a history uh, together over the decades, which was nice. It was interesting. Uh, John Wooden, uh, uh, I did a live interview with John in his uh, Los Angeles suburban home. Wow! And it was really, uh, really interesting to meet him, and uh, you know, he comes to the door and brings. And then when I'm sitting down, he brings me a cup of tea. You know, mm. like himself. You know, he was a, you know, so he was a nice guy. But getting back to the Buffalo Germans, the Buffalo Germans changed their name in World War One in 1917. Oh, sure. In 1917, the Allies were fighting Germany. And they changed their name to the Buffalo Orioles. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes so sense. There was, there was, there was, you know, pro-German sentiment with German Americans, some, but there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. You know, we tend to think of ethnic division today uh, along racial lines, tragically, or uh, you know, based on color, you know, uh, or you know, brown versus white, or something like that, which is tragic in its own way, but. There used to be ethnic divisions in America that were, you know, some Europeans hated other Europeans. And, uh, you know, people still spoke their native tongue that their parents or grandparents spoke. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was not cool to be a German. No, I would imagine not. You know, so they changed their name. 
But, you know, what was the German connection? <laughs> it was the German street YMCA. It had nothing to do with Germany. Interesting. But, uh, you know, they had to change it. I don't recall that they won 100 straight games. Or like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go check my book after this interview. You know? <laughs> Maybe I read it wrong. You never know. No, no. I, I don't. Well, give me a break. It was 12 years ago that I wrote it. And, uh, and uh, like I say, I'm not, uh, you know, like I've said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a guy. I, I like a guy's story. You know, I like yeah. a man's story. Yeah. You know, the sport is of secondary interest to me. Well, so far you have a terrific memory. So let me ask you this. He apparently exaggerated a lot of his accomplishments. And I think I might have this mixed up, but he might've even written some of the press releases about himself. Why did he do that? Why did he need that notoriety? Yeah. Uh, well, it's old shoes. The short answer. Uh, the long answer is uh, he would do radio interviews. He would have interviews published in newspapers and they were scripted. Whether he wrote it or whether Converse wrote it, somebody at Converse, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But Converse provided these scripts to people. And, you know, a local radio personality could, uh, uh, could pretend that they're interviewing Chuck. And then, you know, uh, Chuck would have the answer. They, they were like audio, these little, uh, these little funny records. You know, before you had vinyl LPs, they had different kind of, you know, acid mm -hmm. records. Mm -hmm. I would have the answers. Chuck would have the answers, but the but it had been pre-recorded, hmm. and a guy would pretend he's doing a live interview with Chuck Chuck Taylor, yeah, and it's all BS. It was done. I mean, this is this kind of flim flam went on in America. You know, I mean, I love it in a way. You know, it's kind of like uh, somebody should make a movie about that kind of America. You know, it's it like, funny. Uh, I think because it was funny that it, it was so. I mean, were we that naive? Were 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 we that backward that you know? we as a people that we'd fall for that stuff. And the answer is a lot of us would, you know, back then. It, it certainly. So yeah. You know, it's, you, on, it's on, that, no. it's that saying that we have today. Well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Well, there wasn't an internet back there. And if you heard somebody say something, we weren't that sophisticated back then. We didn't know how radio and television ultimately yeah. worked. So if somebody said it, it's gotta be true. When I was a boy, this is an aside, but it's related to what we're talking about. When I was a boy, I loved to stay up late and listen to uh, baseball is my sport, and I still play softball. But uh, I would listen to Chicago White Sox radio, and there was a guy who did the radio, Red Rush. Red Rush, mm -hmm. I was, you know, I don't know, Red was his nickname. WCFL was the station. Remember that? Uh, it was the CFL stood for Chicago Federation of Labor. Uh, the call letters actually meant something. Uh, they owned the station, and he would call the game. But it was very strange, you know. He would call the game, but then I would have the news on, and on another radio, the game had been over 30 minutes ago. And then, <laughs> then I found out, hey, wait a second, what the guy's doing is he's reading the ticker tape. You know, the ticker tape would come in off the AP wire. Yeah. It was a ticker. It was a ticker. And they'd have sound effects. Yeah. Have sound effects, you know. And it's like, and I always suspected something because there'd be a pause between, you know, oh, the ball's hit, you oh, he hit the ball, but then you hear the sound, the crack of the bat. Well, wait a second. How do you know he hit the ball, the crack of the bat? comes after you said he hit the ball already. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, oh, one run is in. Two runs are in. And then you hear some kind of, you know, kind of whirring or roaring sound in the background. He's turning up the sound effect, you know. 
then, oh, the White Sox, you know, score three, you know. <laughs> Jim, Landis, Jim Landis slides into third base with the triple. And it, but the game was already over. It was like, or it was about, but that kind of stuff was going on with radio stuff. And that stuff was going on with uh, some of these newspaper articles. Who actually wrote them? I don't know, but it could have been Chuck. He was the sales manager by the 1930s. Mm-hmm. He was, he was, and this thing about inventing himself, it was a marketing trick. Converse went bankrupt twice in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Or it went bankrupt once, and then it was sold to avoid bankruptcy a second time. But basically, it went through different ownership. He became sales manager. The shoe was rebranded only after, I'm going to call them two bankruptcies. One technically was not a bankruptcy, but for convenience, there were two bankruptcies. Uh, and after they emerged, Chuck was sales manager at the his name was added to the shoe. Throughout the 1920s, it was not the Chuck Taylor All-Star. Mm-hmm. Only in 1931, suddenly Chuck Taylor's signature is added to it. And Chuck Taylor is this world-famous basketball player. You know? All right. So, so before before uh, we get into all that, I have one other question here. Before we get into all of his relationship with Converse, throughout Chuck's career... He met some pretty cool people. You already mentioned one, John Wooden. Can you tell us a little more about each of them in relationship to Chuck, what they meant to his career? John Wooden, Newt Rockney, Fog Allen. Yeah, the, the Newt Rockney uh, incident is pretty interesting. This, this comes out of an interview that I read uh, with his widow, Uh the widow tells the story that on one of his first sales calls after he was hired by Converse, and he was not the world-famous basketball player, quote-unquote world-famous basketball player then. He was just a former kind of pro basketball player, but he's a salesman now. He's in his mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. And he goes, in, and his territory is Indiana and Illinois. Makes sense. He's living in Chicago now, but he grew up in Indiana. He goes to South Bend to the field house there, according to his wife, his widow, excuse me, uh, he's walking outside. He's just kind of walking around on, on the dirt floor. It had a dirt floor. Then a lot of field houses had a dirt floor in those days, smooth, flat, but dirt. And uh, he's afraid to go in. Newt Rockney <laughs> was afraid to talk to Newt Rockney because Newt Rockney is, you know. He's Newt, Newt Rockney. Newt yeah. is famous. Yeah. Chuck Taylor is not famous. Newt Rockney really is. And it's Notre Dame. You know, this is, uh, and it's Notre Dame football. So you're talking about, you know, bigger than bigger than the NFL, bigger than the NBA at the time. So allegedly, Newt comes out and says something like, you know, what is it? What do you want? What are you afraid of? Just come in. And he sells uh, some shoes to Notre Dame. You know, Newt Rockney's nice to him. Mm-hmm. But Newt allegedly alleged, gives us some advice, you know. So the story to me sounds apocryphal. Says, well, you know, <laughs> it's like Newt Rockney, you know, makes a man out of Chuck Taylor, you know, because, mm. you know, it's almost like win one for, you know, it fits the Newt Rockney image, win <laughs> one for the and all that. So how much of it's true, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I quote someone else as saying it's true in, uh-huh. in, in the book. Uh, Newt Rockney, you know, died in an airplane crash right. uh, uh, a few years later, so it was tragic. Uh, Wooden, I was able to speak to him personally when he was already in his 90s, but, uh, he, you know, 
he died about a year after I got to talk to him. So it was really late in the day. It was hard to get, uh, it was hard to get, uh, uh, Wooden's uh, phone number, you know, carefully guarded. But sure. uh, some folks at Purdue, some, cause he, uh, some folks at Purdue again, uh, uh, said, don't say where you got the number. <laughs> you know, if I, you know, like, I will kill you if you tell anybody where you got the number, but here's the number, call them, you know, I mean, his home number, you know, his home number. So they don't give that out to right, uh, even uh, right. sports reporters. But Purdue had it because uh, Wooden, you know, was an alum of, uh, of Purdue, and he was always loyal to Purdue. Uh, and uh, uh, Wooden had seen Chuck play. And, no, no, I, I forget how they first met, but I think Wooden had heard of Chuck as mm-hmm. a player. So Chuck was a good player. And uh, he met Chuck in the 1920s. That was that he was playing Martinsville High School, Martinsville, small town in southern Indiana, near where Wooden uh, uh, was born. Wooden, I'm telling you, Wooden was born in a one-stoplight town. And, you know, nobody knows the name of it. But Martinsville was like the county seat, so he played uh, high school basketball there. This was the 1920s already. I take back what I said about Wooden had seen Chuck play. No, Chuck had seen Wooden play. Right, Chuck right. Was selling shoes, and because Chuck is really was older, Chuck had seen Wooden play in Martinsville High School, and stopped to talk to him and said, "You know, Chuck knew talent," and uh, Wooden remembered that, and also re- noted that you know Chuck sounded really just like him. They were both good old boys from Southern Indiana, and you have to know something about Southern Indiana to know, there, you know, there's not much difference between. North Alabama or Southern Indiana. I mean, it's, you know, they're kids and cousins, really. Uh, even the Wooden, I think, uh, had better diction. But, uh, you know, if you were going to be educated, you developed good diction. And generally, in general, you don't necessarily have that in Southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people wanted to improve their voice, you know. And maybe that was a stigma they wanted to get rid of, but, but so be it. Uh, they reconnected years later. Uh, basically, I mean, they were, they knew each other, you know, they kind of stayed in touch, but Chuck moved to Los Angeles near, uh, the college where, uh, uh, you know, near, near, uh, UCLA and, and they became friends again. And Chuck would go to practices and Chuck would, uh, try to give tips to some of the players. One said he never liked that. You know, once told Chuck, if you keep talking to my players, you're not going to be in the gym anymore. Uh, but maybe they were kind of friendly advice. Uh, Chuck would have parties and, uh, you know, invite Jim, you know, invite, uh, John Wooden, uh, to them. And, uh, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and there were some other anecdotes, some other anecdotes that I won't go into here, but, mm-hmm. uh, they were in the book. Uh, once, uh, uh, Wooden really got angry at something Chuck did. A couple of times, Wooden really got angry. He thought Chuck had gone Hollywood. And, uh, Chuck had in certain ways gone Hollywood. His first wife was, in fact, a bit actress. Uh, you know, he had a couple of roles in movies, you know, not, not too much better than that. Uh, but uh, Wooden knew a lot about uh, Indiana basketball, and he knew a lot about uh, uh, the shoot Chuck. Uh, excuse me, uh, John Wooden used the Converse All-Star. Mm-hmm. That was very influential. Fog Allen also That's used the guy. The but Fog Allen, All-Star. right? Fog, Fog Allen, he, at first, though, he didn't use the Converse All-Stars. There was something about he and, and uh, you, you wrote about this, about how he, 
Chuck might have upstaged Fog Allen at a clinic or something like that. And Fog Allen was none too pleased. And something about at that point, Dean Smith said, yeah, we had to wear Keds for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, these guys, I mean, they sound like they were, uh, I don't say egomaniacs or insecure or alpha ma- alpha males may be the, uh, the, the proper term to talk about. Uh, where Converse got loyalty from most basketball coaches, uh, Converse funded something called, if I recall correctly, the, Na- uh, the National Association of Basketball Coaches. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the Association of Collegiate Basketball Coaches. Something like that. It was a pretty important uh, group, uh, and it was largely funded by corporate contribution from Converse, uh, and that bought loyalty. Uh-huh. No doubt. I talked to uh, I talked to a guy who was, I think, the coach at uh, uh, I think uh, U- Lutheran University in Washington State. There's some other guy who was still alive who, who actually played for Chuck on his army team. Chuck was a coach of an army team. We should really talk about that a little bit. But he said the contributions that Converse made to the National Association of Basketball Coaches had bought a lot of loyalty. And it was not a bribe, but, you know, indirectly it was, you know, you, you know, money talks and it bought some influence. So uh, the team, that was a day when it was important. If, if, uh, if a team ordered, you know, 12 dozen shoes, you know, that meant something, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe more than 12 dozen shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you didn't have the million dollar contract, but a few thousand dollars here, a few thousand dollars there, you know, before inflation, it meant something. Uh, John, Converse lost its status as a professional quality, as professional quality equipment. Because in the 50s, if you look at any player in the 50s, they're wearing Converse. Sometimes they're wearing kids. Sometimes they're wearing, uh, uh, you know, a similar type shoe, but it's usually, usually Converse. Uh, it was by the mid '60s, team stopped using them, and that's when the German companies came, mm-hmm. Adidas and the uh, uh, Puma. They mm-hmm. were two German companies. Uh, number one, they were paying off the coaches. There, <laughs> there was no doubt about it. They were paying coaches to use their. Uh, instead of paying the organization, they were the money was going directly into people's pockets, wow. or they were making contributions to the colleges. Directly to the and college. some of that, and some of that still happens today. Let's talk about Converse shoes. And by the way, we will get into the military and where and where Chuck ended up with the Air Techs and in just a tiny bit. Um, let's talk about the Converse shoes, and I think you have to start with this: Who was Marquis Converse, and how did Chuck Taylor meet him? Well, Marquis uh, Converse was the founder of the company. Um, he was involved in a, a local department store first, but uh, or his family his family made its money in a local department store. But uh, they founded the company again from memory, 1908, 1909, something like that. And they made uh, uh, you know rubber galoshes, uh, you know stuff like that, you know things out of, things out of rubber. And they made their All Star shoe, which was called the All Star shoe, in 1917. Uh, it was not the first athletic shoe, but it was one of the early ones. And uh, the, the secret to the athletic shoe then was vulcanization. It's a funny word to use, but vulcanization. Uh, you could you could uh, basically melt the rubber to the fabric, to the cotton, to the cotton duck fabric or canvas fabric, without destroying the canvas, and it would stick. It would adhere. 
but how the chemistry works. So they got the chemistry down, the right kind of rubber, the right kind of adhesive, the right kind of temperature, uh, and, and it worked. So, and it was cheap as hell. I mean, it was just canvas and rubber, you know, so the raw materials were nothing. There was terrific added value, a term that businessmen use. You take some raw material and you sell something for a decent profit after you manufacture it. Uh, so we got into that. Uh, Converse's heyday was really in World War II. They made a lot of stuff for the military, including they started making some uh, uh, leather goods, uh, you know, sheepskin lined leather boots for, for pilots because it got cold up there in the airplanes. So it wasn't always just it wasn't always just rubber. But uh, Mark Key, uh, Converse, uh, committed suicide. Some point I forget hmm. the date. There was some problem. Uh, there was some problem, and he committed suicide. Uh, and the company uh, has not been in the Converse family for you know decades and right. decades and decades. Right. How did Chuck a, meet him? How did know, Chuck? How did Chuck meet Marquis? Uh, I'm not sure that Chuck ever met uh, uh, Marquis. He was hired by somebody in Chicago. I don't. I don't recall writing that that he did personally okay. meet Marquis Converse. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he walked into the the story goes, he just walked into the Chicago office and presented himself, and he was hired by a guy. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, he, he didn't, when he was younger, he would not have had a connection with the Boston offices. It would have been the Chicago regional office. Mm-hmm. So the Converse Rubber Company, it wasn't built as a sneaker company, at least if I follow the story correctly. Rather, it was a a company that had hoped to make a big mark in the tire industry, but that never really came about. Um, And I guess that sort of their their continue or their, you know, the fact that they wanted to be in the tire industry – sort of ultimately led to its demise and possibly to Marquis' uh, uh, suicide. Yeah, I have to check the year that, uh, that, that, that he died, but it certainly led to the bankruptcy. Uh, they were not originally a tire manufacturer. You know, they just made, like I say, just kind of rubber goods that, 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 that you would use, whether it was household stuff, but mostly clothing and, and you know, fishing gear and stuff like that, or stuff that fishermen would need. Uh, not, I don't mean wheel and rod or anything like that. Uh, but they got into the tire business. Uh, it was a big investment. There was competitors, you know, Americans had cars more and more. And, uh, he went up against the big boys. Who were the big boys? Well, you know, Goodyear and Firestone were mm-hmm. the big boys. And there was, uh, Cooper. Cooper was also a pretty big company, American company. And, uh, you know, it failed. It failed. The tires were, as I recall, the tires in particular had a high failure rate. It's not mm-hmm. easy making a tire. You know, the, the, the tread would, you know, the tread comes off the car because it's not good. That's not good. And, and uh, they lost money. And that, it, and in fact, it, and it's expensive too. And, uh, you know, you have to start a whole new dealer metro, you know, a, whole, a whole new dealer network. And you're already facing competition. You know, the market's already kind of saturated. So, uh, it did go bankrupt. That was the first bankruptcy, and then there was a second kind of pseudo bankruptcy. Uh, it just was losing money. The company's losing money, so somebody else bought it, which mm-hmm. was the Stone family. The Stone family mm-hmm. uh, resurrected it. Uh, they were in the Boston area, and the Stone family owned it for before some uh, big corp. You know, some just a big conglomerate uh, bought mm-hmm. it after the Stone family. But it was a family-owned business, and as when the Stone family bought it. 
that the Converse shoe was rebranded, the All-Star shoe was rebranded as the Chuck Taylor shoe. So, you know, some clever marketing going on. Right. So so how smart a guy or how smart a salesman was Chuck Taylor and 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 whose idea was it to put his name on the all-star shoe? And what did that mean to sales? Yeah, I have to think it was Chuck's idea. Uh, Converse also had a wonderful annual yearbook. And it was literally a, a sports yearbook came out early fall. The, yeah, the year. Converse, the Converse All-Star yeah, I mean, yearbook, people, and everybody waited for it. Yeah, collectible, highly collectible. I mean, highly collectible. Uh, of all things, University of Notre Dame, to this day, has a complete collection. Don't ask me why. I don't think it has anything to do with Newt Rockney, but they have a, a complete collection. Converse offices, they have most of them. Uh, and you can get them on eBay. Not, yeah, you, I, you know, it's funny you say eBay. that. It's funny you say yeah. that because before be, before this interview, I actually went on eBay to see if there's any Converse yearbooks on there, and sure enough, there are. And I'm yeah. going to probably get a couple. Yeah, they were just high. They were high quality. I mean, they would have profiles of a college team, you know, little profiles and snippets, photograph team photos. I mean, man, if you you know. I mean, I remember in high, you know, it was just, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but I, I remember in high school, man, you got your photo in a national magazine or a national, even a tiny little thing, you know, you're one of, you know, 12 kids on the team. Wow, that's something, you know. And, uh, but they also had uh, stories, legitimate stories by well known people in basketball, uh, stories about strategy, uh, usually stories about strategy, but trends in the game. People would call for rules changes. The sport was still developing. Uh, uh, it was just—it was just a nice. It wasn't just a yearbook, you know, but mm-hmm. it was actually almost a serious journal uh, for people who were serious fans of the sport. And they had wonderful cover illustrations. I mean, it was—it mm-hmm. was always the, it was always an original, always original artwork on the cover. And it was, you know, kind of from the Norman Rockwell era of America. I don't think Norman Rockwell ever did a cover, but a lot of illustrators did Norman Rockwell. Type of illustrations, and it was just so nice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, it, and Chuck always had the lead article. It was basically, I said it was a Converse yearbook, but really it was Chuck Taylor's yearbook. Mm-hmm. And Chuck had the lead article. Chuck's smiling face was in there, and he always had his All American list. And that Chuck was huge. And that was a yeah. big deal. And people paid attention to it. And I talked to people, and they said. This was legitimate. You didn't buy your way in there. You know, Chuck, the word was that Chuck never put a kid on the All-American list unless he personally saw him play. Hmm. So it, it wasn't just testimonials. And I think today, you know, people make recommendations based on, well, you know, the reports are pretty good on him, but I don't know. You know, I didn't see him play. You know, Chuck scouted out himself. There was a business angle to doing that, too, because... If you had a hot shot player and you wanted him to be selected as an all-star, all-American, you said, Chuck, you got to come see this guy play. Chuck would go come see him play, but you were expected to buy some shoes. <laughs> it was just so funny. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, Chuck personally, you know, witnessed. He was a witness to everything uh, he, he testified to, but he also sold shoes at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody who called him down, you know, called him down to see the boys play. 
It was very interesting. Having said that, you know, nobody complained about Chuck. I mean, Chuck, I never heard that Chuck took a bribe. Never. I mean, just no hint of that, that Chuck uh, was just, you know, that there were shady deals or anyway. You know, uh, he did, however, we're jumping in. He did, however, run off with an athletic director's wife <laughs> from a small Missouri college in the 1950s. And, and I mean that literally. I mean, if you're going to make a movie about Chuck's life, you, you, it would it would have to be that, you know. And he literally, he was, you know, he'd go down to visit this, you know, he went down to visit this school a couple of times too often. It was suspicious. I come, I come. He keeps coming around. And, you know, it was it was the guy's wife. That was it. It was terrible. But that was it. <laughs> You know, another really important aspect to the Chuck Taylor story and a way that coaches would ensure that their their kids would get a pair of Converse All-Stars were the clinics. Chuck put on clinics. How important were they in the growth of Converse and how important were they to college basketball coaches? Yeah, it was huge. I'd say more for high school basketball coaches, but uh, but for both, for small college coaches and for high school coaches, it was just huge. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that Chuck probably did 3,000, 3,500 of these clinics. It would be more accurate to call them demonstrations, but he called them clinics. It would be in high school gyms. Uh, they often were announced in the news, you know, Chuck Taylor, you know, a legendary, legendary veteran of the original uh, uh-huh. Olympic. Uh-huh. I, you know, I talked to people and used the original Olympic. He was the original Celtic. He was never on the original Celtics. I talked to a guy who wrote a complete biography of the original Celtics. I mean, incredibly detailed, much more detailed than my book. I mean, too detailed uh, to be really readable. Uh, as far as I was concerned, he had, has, has every... Uh, Every score sheet from every game the Celtics ever played in the 1920s, Chuck never played on that team. <laughs> but anyway, but anyways, uh, uh, Chuck would draw, you know, hundreds. There would be hundreds of people to some, you know, into a local gym, and that was pretty good, you know, in a small town. Uh, uh, the the events often often were sponsored, quote unquote, sponsored by a local sporting goods team. Uh, excuse me, local sporting goods store. Mm-hmm. You know, people in those days, every small town had its own sporting goods store. Right. Every neighborhood in a big city had its own sporting goods store. You know, uh, I, I was on my high school baseball team one year. I only made it one year. And they said, all right, you go down to, they gave you the store to go down to, right, which is a couple right. blocks away. And, you know, you know, you bought some of your supplies and the school, you know, supplied other stuff. But, you know, you bought your socks there or something like that. I forget now. Uh, or you bought your own glove there. They didn't, the, the teams didn't give you a glove. You had to get your own, uh, which was which was fine because you, you, you only wanted a glove that just felt right on your hand. Sure. But uh, Chuck uh, put these clinics on, and, you know, a lot of these high school coaches, especially in high school, the guy was the football coach, the baseball coach, the, the gym coach, the soccer coach, you know. High schools had soccer, you know, more than you'd think uh, in the old days. It wasn't just a European sport. And, you know, they taught history and geography, too, right? <laughs> so so what do they know? What do, You know, they didn't know right. basketball. They didn't play basketball. They didn't grow up. If they were a, a coach in the, in the 1920s, 1930s or 1940s, uh, the clinics really didn't start in a big way till the 1930s. Uh, 
that means that the, the teacher or the coach himself grew up, maybe never played basketball at all, you know, when he was growing up. Mm-hmm. So uh, the fundamentals, he would teach the fundamentals. I once had a little handbook that Chuck would give out, and I, I feel so bad that I lost it. No. I don't know where it is. They would give out these little handbooks. They would fit in you. They would just fit in a shirt pocket, you know, with the basic rules of the game and uh, basic strategy it would be illustrated, you know, little diagrams. And uh, it was terrific. He'd give these out. So uh, he'd give them out to the coaches. And uh, and then he would do demonstrations. He would do trick shots. Mm-hmm. He had a guy named uh, uh, Bunny Levitt. See, somebody should do a book about Bunny Le- Bunny, as in a, you know, a little bunny that runs uh-huh, for a rabbit. Uh-huh. Uh, five foot five guy, literally, he was five foot five, who do trick shots. I mean, Bunny Levitt did like 792 free throws in a row. He was the free throw <laughs> champion of the world. The free throw. Again, this is this is the day of, you know, the circus coming to town. I mean, it was a circus. It, Bunny Levitt would do these trick shots. Well, do these trick shots, but these free throws, and he would do them fast, you know. Somebody would feed him the basketball, he'd just do it like a machine. It would be automatic. And in fact, Bunny Levitt was so good that the Harlem Globetrotters stole him away from Chuck. Wow. <laughs> The greatest stories I know. He started because Bunny was from Chicago. So, uh, like I said, he was all from Chicago, and the Globetrotters were from Chicago. And a guy named Abe Saperstein was uh, really the founder and manager of of the Harlem Globetrotters for about 35 years. And Abe stole Bunny Bunny away from Chuck. I mean, it's like it's almost comical, but it's so charming, too, that this is how things went. And uh, in fact, I have a Chicago Tribune article. They're, they're kind of celebrating Bunny Levitt. They, they went out to check him out. They said, is, he the guy, is this guy really that good? And they said, oh, damn, he only made 510 when we watched him. <laughs> you know, Bunny put on a demonstration for the reporter, but he only made about 510 or 520 before he missed one. So uh, nobody was calling him a liar, but it was just for fun, I guess. Sure. And, uh, 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 it was good. You know, now the thing about and, being, and 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 and. Chuck also made a couple of trick shots as well. Yeah, he would do that. He would do one on five. His favorite was to do one on five. We'd say, okay, I'm going to challenge you boys to a team. Uh, the first, me against all of you, and the first to score a goal, game over. You know, sudden death in a sense. They didn't call it sudden death. That's what it was. Chuck had the advantage. He got the ball first. Okay. <laughs> so it's like winning the, you know, it's like winning the, the, the flip in uh, overtime in football, you know, which by the way, let me put my two cents worth in there. The overtime rules in football are still the worst overtime rules I've ever seen. Don't even get me football. started. Yeah. Just I don't, know. don't it, get me started. It just, I mean, you know, it just, it's enough to stop watching football, but back to basketball, uh, Chuck would get the ball first. And almost always he would score. They couldn't stop him and doing stuff legally. You know, you, you know, people would try to, you know, you know, reach in and, and try to get the ball. He could dribble past anybody and passing had nothing to do with it, but he would show people the invisible pass. Uh, John Wooden told me what the real trick was to one of the invisible passes. And he told Chuck never to show it to his players again, ever. But Chuck was showing them what, and he said, this was one of the two times, that uh, Wooden told me he really got angry. I mean, he really got angry at Chuck. So don't ever show that. You know, it was like, like, don't ever show that. What is it? Well, the thing is, Chuck, we had have the ball. So I'm switching gears now to one of the invisible passes because mm-hmm. there's a different kind of invisible passes. 
you know, I mean, Chuck would just call anything. He was just a good passer. He would take the ball and he would appear to shove it right in the eyes of the other guy. Just shove it right in the eyes as if it would make you wince. You know, just imagine somebody's about to punch you in mm-hmm. the face. And, you know, your head would go back and you'd wince. You wouldn't know what was happening. Oh, then you'd pass the ball. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, anybody could do it. Well, that's, that's, that's not even cheating. That's just. That's just dumbass stuff, you know? And, and it is like, Chuck, that's it? That's it? No, no, no. No, that's no good, Chuck. And uh, I don't know if it's a legal maneuver or not. I mean, I don't watch much basketball, but I've never seen anybody no, do it. No. Hey, um, got to switch s- switch gears here. The air yeah. tax. Tell us about the air tax. I mean, this was a military team uh, and yeah. and it was so darn good it could contend with any collegiate or professional basketball team of the time i mean there were hall of famers on this team talk about the air attacks yeah uh, uh i have my best documentation about the right field air attacks and it was a i r dash t e c s uh did I say that right? T-E-C-F, yeah. Yes. And it was uh, because they were at Wright Field, now Wright-Patterson, but it was Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, or near Dayton, Ohio. And it was the Air Tactical Command Center at the time. They did a lot of testing of air, of air equipment at Dayton. Why? Because the land was so flat near there, they could just have airplanes land without a runway. You didn't need a runway. Hmm. And they had a runway. But you didn't need a runway, and they would have uh, big airplanes come in and out. And it was in the heartland, and it was you know just it, it was safe to test uh, big airplanes there. But the but uh, you know the big bombers and stuff like that, and and that's uh, that's where they were developed and tested. And they had a, it was the command uh, air force base. It was not called the air force then. It was the uh, army air corps, the army air corps. But I'll just for shorthand call it the air force. Some some good historian out there listening is going to catch me if I don't make that acknowledgement. <laughs> so, I, so I acknowledge that. Uh, uh, they had a command. That was the command post. The Navy had a, first of all, lots of bases had recreationally. They had basketball teams and uh, soccer. They liked soccer more than football. They had football teams, but it was mostly basketball, soccer in the military, and boxing, they had a lot of boxing at uh, these at these bases. But each each branch had a a command post team. They really represented the whole uh, the whole branch of service. So uh, the Navy had one up north of Chicago, and and the uh, uh, the base there. I, I forget the name of the base now, but the the, the Navy had a good basketball team too. Uh, the Army. The Air Techs uh, had their basketball team, and then the regular Army had a team that was, was nothing special. The Air Techs would play college teams, and they would play these pro teams from leagues that were already professional leagues. They were no longer industrial leagues. Uh, it was the pre-NBA, but there were two leagues that were uh, – there was something called the National Basketball League – and some other league in the 1940s. Yeah, the Basketball the Association of America. Of America. And so yeah, when you combine the two, Thank you. it yeah, became the, the National Basketball yeah. Association. Yeah, and that was in 1948. Those were the two leagues that really were professional leagues by the 1940s. And the Air Techs 
would play, you know, those teams. Now, it was World War II, and these were always fundraisers. They were always fun. They were morale builders and fundraisers. The uh, Air Attacks had their own airplane they got to travel on. Chuck was the coach. Chuck was recruited to be the coach uh, by the commander, uh, the base commander, and uh, in part because the the commander wanted to beat the Navy team. They talk about Army Navy, you know, the Army Navy football rivalry. In World War II, was really the Army Air Corps Navy basketball rivalry, and uh, they got the, these these games got a lot of play. They were really exhibitions, you know. But uh, they were they were hard fought, and the Air Techs won almost every game. I mean, it was it was like the 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 year that I followed, which was the 1944-45 uh, season. They won like 55 out of 57 games. And wow, wow! And in a sleight of hand that I'll try to summarize briefly here, they went to a tournament, a professional tournament which was an invitational professional tournament in Chicago. The, uh, one of the Chicago newspapers every year had the World Professional Basketball Tournament. That's what it was called, the World Professional Basketball Tournament. They had some of the pro teams, like the Fort Wayne Pistons, always got invited. Uh, uh, typically, the two well-known black teams were invited, the Harlem Globetrotters. And the one from Brooklyn, I tell you, I, 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 I just so embarrassed that I don't remember the, the – the, the name of the team that really was from New York. Uh, and then they had other teams. It was by invitation. <laughs> the Air Techs were going to go. The Air Techs were going to go. This was like uh, a few weeks before, well, actually a couple of months before the bombing of Hiroshima. And a lot of that stuff was being planned at Dayton, though the plane did not come out of Dayton. But a lot of the stuff was being planned there, and everybody was consigned, uh, uh, confined to base. The air techs were going to go to that tournament by invitation, but they couldn't because, you know, everybody was confined to base. Something big sure. was going to happen. Yep. Something big was going to happen. So uh, what did they do? There was a local Dayton professional team that played in one of the leagues. I forget if they were in the BAA or the National Basketball League. They were called the Dayton Aviators. It was a professional team. What happened was that several of the air techs, some who had personal leave, if you had personal leave, you could still go. So when I say confined, I'm probably using the term confined to base incorrectly. But the air techs, as such, were not allowed to travel. So the team sport, as such, was not allowed to travel. But some of the guys had, uh, you know, personal leave, and they took their leave, and they joined the Dayton Aviators just overnight. They're members of the Dayton Aviators. The Dayton Aviators had an invitation to go to the professional tournament. And it was, like I say, it was an invitational tournament, but it was billed as the world professional. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, in fact, it was, in fact, uh, the biggest tournament, uh, basketball tournament in America outside of the NIT, which was much bigger than, than the NCAA tournament at that time. And the people don't know this, but the, the NIT used to be much bigger than, than the NCAA. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yep. so that's going back a long time, and the the World Professional Basketball Tournament was as big as the NIT, uh, and it was for professional, not for uh, amateur teams. And, so and, the Dayton Aviators show up. The Dayton Aviators show up, 
but most of them are the air techs. They literally bumped the regular, uh, the coach literally bumped the regular uh, aviator players because these, these uh, fly boys were better players. Now, uh, one guy who was the best player on Chuck's team uh, uh, demurred, I'll use that word, demurred, uh, or demurred, and did not go because it was a guy named Dwight Edelman from the University of Illinois, a phenom in Illinois high school basketball, a phenom his first few weeks playing in uh, uh, college ball for the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, quit at 17, just quit. He was still 17. I mean, he went to, he went to college. He must have been 16 when he went to college uh, to join up uh, uh, the Air Force or the Air Corps. And he played for, by that time he was probably 19 or 20, he played for the, the uh, right field. He did not want to go join the aviators. Why? He felt it would affect his college eligibility mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. He went, when he got out of the service, which it would have. So he did not go. Uh, there was another guy, uh, it would have uh, affected his uh, eligibility, so he went under a fake name. But he, was, he was exposed <laughs> later, but he went under a fake name. But he was terrific, and he ultimately became the coach at, uh, I think, uh, University of Miami, and I'll think of his name now. Bruce uh, Hale? He, uh, was, yeah, Bruce, Bruce Hale. Hale. And the other guys yeah. on the team were like Johnny Schick and John yep. Mankin. Um, and I think the name of the of the New York team you're referring to was it the Brooklyn Eagles? Nope, nope, not the Eagles. I'm going to have to go get my book. It was it was not the uh, <laughs> it, was, it was not the Eagles. Uh, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, anyways, they went and they made it to the final game. They made it to the final game. They were slaughtering everybody. The Aircats just beat the hell out of. You know, four, five, six, they were beating, you know, top professional teams right and left. And the final, the final game was against two, the Fort Wayne Pistons, Mm -hmm. which was the top team throughout the 1940s, really. It was a top professional team. Uh, I mean, in their day, it was like the, uh, 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 you know, the New England Patriots in football are in recent years, you know. And uh, they did lose. They did lose to the... uh, there's another New York team I saw, the New York Wrens, the Renaissance, the New York yeah, Wrens. Yeah, the Renaissance. Thank okay. You. Thank you. You're like, I didn't want to get up and, and go to my bookshelf uh, <laughs> in the other room. I read uh, the book. They were called the Wrens. They were called the Wrens, uh, uh, but it's short for the Renaissance. And, uh, right. Yeah, they were great. In fact, I think the New York Wrens won the tournament outright uh, in, in, in 43. Uh, this was 45. The term was like the spring, early spring or late winter, late winter of 45. And it drew crowd. I mean, it filled the old Chicago Stadium. So uh, it, it was it was a major sport. And it was, it was, it was, you know, the back page news. You know, sports pages always were the back pages of a tabloid newspaper. So it, it was, you know, the number one sports story, you know, across the country. And uh, gambling was big. And, and that was the thing. I... I I read, I could not document or prove, but I, I, I read of the rumors that gambling was going on and uh, during that tournament. And there is a suggestion that the aviators, who really were the air techs, threw the game, hmm. you know, threw, just threw it to, uh, there was too much money riding. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know the, uh, 
the Pistons were going to win. End of story. So, uh, but again, you know, that's the ugly side of sport in America. Sure, sure. One other note about the Wrens. If I got this one right, I think you also wrote that they at one time won 88 games in a row. Yeah, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds right. Yeah, they were terrific, yeah. yeah. Uh, they never were clowns. You know, the, the Globetrotters were a serious team for many years, and they held on as just, you know, as entertainment, comic entertainment. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Wrens uh, were the real deal. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to Converse for a second. Um, the sneakers themselves, how dominant in the game of basketball were Converse All-Stars, the Chuck Taylors? Well, dominant is the right word. You know, uh, they were ubiquitous. I'm going to send some of your uh, listeners to the dictionary, but they were everywhere. <laughs> you know, they, they were ubiquitous. Uh, I mean, they were good. They were as good or better than any other shoe. Uh, though I tell you that uh, I talked to... Uh, uh, an early NBA player, a Canadian guy, his name will come to me, but he was still living when I did the book. And he was one of the salesmen for Congress. Chuck, when he when he stopped going on the road, he hired other basketball players, ex-professional basketball players, to go on the road to sell the shoe. And this guy was on the road. And uh, uh, he said Congress were not better than kids. Were not hmm. better. Hmm. And I want to tell you, as a kid, I always aspired to have Keds. Keds made a shoe, and, you know, I think the once Pro I got Keds, to buy The I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Them and the PF like, Flyers. Well, I tell you, I'm older than you, I think. They used to be called Keds, and they'd be called Pro Keds. Yeah. To me, they're just Keds, you know. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, the canvas was good, heavy. Uh, when I was a kid, the shame was if you had to go to Sears <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and buy Sears brand. You know, it's like... You know, I guess kids today, if they have to go to Walmart, you know, buy some off-brand, you know, shoe, because, you know, mom and dad just can't afford uh, Nike uh, or can't afford uh, whatever else the other hot brand would be. But uh, uh, typically I was wearing uh, stuff from Sears Roebuck, as we called it then. <laughs> uh, but I really aspired to have. Here's a nice story about Chucks. To tell you how important Chucks were, uh, first of all, there, there are two kinds of people in America. Some who say Chuck Taylors in the plural, and some will say Chucks. Yeah. In Chicago, and I tell you, what, as far as I can tell, in black neighborhoods, they were Chuck Taylors. They were not Chucks. They were Chuck Taylors. Uh, but I've taken to call them Chucks. When I moved to Indiana, people just say Chucks. Uh-huh. You know, and you, you say Chucks, but to me, really, I, I, I just kind of got used to saying Chucks, but I didn't really think of them as Chuck Taylors. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, uh, in my high school in Chicago, you could not wear Chuck Taylors unless you were on a varsity team. You didn't have to be on the varsity basketball team. You had to be on a varsity team, and a mark of that was, I mean, this is so interesting. The sign of that was you wore Chuck Taylors. Wow. You know, that might help you get girls. I mean, I don't know if that sounds sexist or not, but, you know, <laughs> that, was, that was the name of the game. You know, that was the name of the game. You know, it was like uh, – it was right up there with having a varsity jacket that you'd give your girlfriend, you know, I mean, if, and girls wanted to wear that varsity jacket. I mean, there was no doubt about it. You just uh-huh. give it to them. And, uh, I mean, that was, I think that meant more than just going steady. I'm not sure because <laughs> I never had a varsity jacket, so I can't say, but if you wore Chuck, now you could go to any store and buy Chuck's, you know, there's no law against it, 
But if you were not on a varsity team and you wore chucks, you know what that meant? It meant you were fake. Oh, wow. And that was one of the worst things you could be in high school. I mean, this was kind of the code in the 1950s. Well, it was early oh, wow. 1960s already. But really, this was the code in America. You know, it's like people, you know, you can't be fake. You know, it just it, it just it was a real you just were embarrassing yourself. So I got on the uh, varsity baseball team one year. I was never a starter. I was not really good. And uh, uh, and of course, in baseball, you know, we didn't wear you don't right. have you wore spikes. Right. You didn't right. you didn't wear you didn't wear uh, basketball shoes or sneakers. But I thought about, well, should I go buy some chucks now? I thought, well, you know, I'm not really a starter. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to be fake. So, so I tell you, I never, I actually never wore chucks. So about 25 years ago, I just kind of started wearing these shoes again. You know, it was like you couldn't, you could not find, or I could, I didn't look for them, I guess, you know, that kind of shoe. Keds were not, you know, pro keds were not right. made anymore, blah, blah, blah. Uh, American Red Ball, you know, that was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, PF Flyers. The PF Flyers are back now. You know, they're made abroad, but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, PF Flyers are fine. Uh, but they were all kind of gone for a while. But Chuck's always were around. You had to look for them. Uh, and then I, I think I just saw them in a store and I said, oh, I'll buy them. It's great. I love them. Yeah, you know, no matter what you call them, Chuck's, Chuck Taylor's, Converse All-Stars, no matter what you call them. This was a sneaker that dominated the industry. And then, well, they fell on hard times. The company was sold, was sold, sold again. And now the shoe, it's back, but it's more of a fashion statement than anything else. What happened? Well, uh, long story short, the, uh, uh, the artsy crowd, you know, the hip crowd, the hipsters, uh, people in Brooklyn, New York, you know, with the revival of Brooklyn, they started wearing them. So it became associated with, I don't want to say the counterculture in the 1960s sense. It was not an act, it was not an act of protest to wear the shoes. It was not, uh, you know, any kind of revolutionary thing. But minimalism became maximalism. You know, minimal, minimalism became the statement. You know, I don't need expensive shoes. Uh, uh, I'm not into Gucci. Uh, it became, you know, the anti-fashion fashion statement. And again, it was the, uh, and it became, it had a left-wing tinge as far as men mm-hmm. wearing them you know, politically, it, but not a revolutionary tinge. You know, uh, you know, there was, it was not anti, it was not Antifa or Antifa, however you pronounce it. It wasn't that bad, but, uh, but the artist crowd, uh, you know, certainly the grunge music crowd is really the kind of, which was alternative music. Again, not so much politically alternative, but just just alternative to uh, I don't want to say schlock radio, but I just said it. You know, <laughs> it, it was just uh, uh, and it, so that had its own uh, elan. It had its own cachet. Uh, you could become part of a crowd. You, you, you know, if you weren't in the in crowd, you were in another kind of in crowd. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really think uh, that was it. That was well. That was one thing. The other thing was, for some reason, I can't put my finger on it, but it absolutely 100% is one of the few unisex, true unisex yeah. garments out there. And you could say uh, Levi's jeans. I'd say maybe Levi's jeans are second. So girls don't wear jeans anymore. You know, they 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 wear uh, 
you know, stockings. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah the spandex. But, uh, you know, just completely, you know, yoga pants. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I can't, I, I'm just sitting here. I, I don't think you can. I don't think your listeners will come up with any item of clothing that absolutely positively is unisex. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, women will wear an oversized men's sweater. Sometimes mm-hmm. women can dress in a, uh, a dress shirt and a tie. Mm-hmm. which I think is a very sexy look. You know? Sure. But Marlena, Marlena Dietrich, you know, if you remember that German-American mm-hmm. actress uh, from 1930, I say German-American, she was German, but she was anti-Nazi. She left Germany. She was a very brave and uh, intelligent woman. So I call her German-American. I don't know if she ever got an American citizenship. Uh, uh, she often dressed that way. And it was, you know, it was a knockout. You know, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. a, a drop-dead look. Uh uh, but that's not unisex. That's not, what I mean was you just go, you see children. Yeah, you know, each I mean, of mine, my kids. son, my son had him, my daughter had him. You're right. Yeah, and, it's, and you don't think, you don't think twice about it either. It's like, it doesn't look like, oh, uh, she's wearing a boy's shoe or he's wearing girls clothing. It's, it never looks wrong. Nope. No matter who's wearing it. it it's kind of, it's kind of odd. And yeah. uh, I mean, really, what else? I'll ask you, what, what else, I'll ask your listeners to think, they won't come up, maybe they'll email you with an answer. What else could possibly constitute or could come close to being that kind of, uh, that kind of unisex garment? Yeah, you're right. Without even thinking, without even thinking that it's unisex, you know. So I think that's uh, helped popularity, and it's just, uh, uh, it's special for that reason. And mm-hmm. I can't say what's special about it, but that's what makes it special. Mm-hmm. Abe, you know, there's so much more we can cover. And in a way, we've only really scratched the surface of the Chuck Taylor story. And I don't want to give it all away. But your book, again, Chuck Taylor All-Star, the true story of the man behind the most famous athletic shoe in history, which was published by Indiana University Press, is truly a wonderful look back at dare I say, a legend in basketball. But I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the Hall of Fame. Chuck was inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame alongside Red Auerbach, Dutch Dennert, Hank Iba, and Adolph Rupp. And in your book, you show a photo of all of them, yet Chuck is, well, I guess he's sort of standing off to the side. Did he feel like he should have been there? It just it just looks a little awkward. Yeah, I, I, I agree with your. Uh, I saw the same thing. So, and I had the same question. Uh, the other guys were, uh, you know, basketball coaches. Now Chuck did coach uh, uh, in the in the army, but uh, you know these guys already were accomplished basketball players that so he got. They recruited basically. They recruited. Uh, the best players to come to Dayton. Uh, Chuck was able to get some guys transferred that he knew were good players. He said, what, what, why is this guy playing in Oklahoma for, uh, you know, the, you know, this, this, uh, this local army base come to the command mm-hmm. post, you know, mm-hmm. you know, be on the national touring team. So uh, he was able to arrange for transfers. So he was a coach, but more than that, he was really a recruiter. Uh, these other guys were real coaches. Mm-hmm. And did he feel that he didn't belong? What I think is this real speculation: Did they feel he didn't belong? 
Yeah, yeah. They, was it they who said, okay, you stand there. Okay, you know, we're, we're the real deal. That's kind of how I look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I don't know. Uh, uh, it just looks I, awkward. I talk, in fact, in fact I, I'm going to go further. In fact, I do know. I do know. Because I got to talk to Red Arbach uh, while he was still living. And he poo-pooed uh, the idea that Chuck should be in the Hall of Fame. Ah. Chuck is in. He said, well, you know, Chuck really did. You know, he didn't really teach us anything about basketball. Well, if you're Red Arbach, no. Chuck Taylor did not teach you anything about basketball. Right. Uh, if, if you're Adolph Rupp, no. Chuck Taylor did not teach you anything about basketball. So, uh but he was a contributor because he really yes. brought a lot of it, and legitimately so. He brought a lot of attention to the sport. He did do those clinics, you know. I mean, yep. thou- you know, hundreds of thousands of people over the years went. He toured for the U.S. State Department in South America one year. Uh, goodwill, you know, goodwill trips. Uh, people in South America knew him, mm-hmm. so it was good. You know, Louis Armstrong toured. You know, people. You know, it was the, the State Department would put on these tours. Uh, uh, other people, just goodwill tours uh, uh, to make people like America. You know, we're, we're always so concerned about people. They should like us, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, even in the 50s. We were concerned about that. So in the late 1950s, uh, and I think there's a picture where Chuck is standing by an airplane, mm-hmm. you know, an, an old uh, C-3 maybe, a DC-3 flying flying somewhere, landing somewhere, standing beside it. Uh, uh, he, he belonged, as, and that's how he's inducted. He's called a contributor. He's not inducted as a. Uh huh. I think I think the term was invented because I don't know if anybody had been inducted as a contributor before that. Mm-hmm. So it reminds me a little bit of the Academy Awards. You know, if you've never won an Oscar, but you you're really important, what do they give you? Lifetime they give you a achievement. Lifetime achievement. They yep. give you the lifetime achievement award. So and it's legitimate. Usually, I mean, sometimes I don't know all these guys, but you know, I watch the Oscars and they tell you who he is. I say, yeah, mm-hmm. sounds like he was pretty important. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's look at it that way. If mm-hmm. you're uh, if you're Meryl Streep as an actress, and they give some other woman uh, a lifetime achievement award, you might say good, but don't confuse that with me. <laughs> so that's that's what I think uh, was going on. Mm-hmm. Lastly, Abe, during your research for this book. What surprised you most? What did you find out about Chuck Taylor that made you go, wow? Uh, that's a great question. I love that question. You're, you're really making me think it's more than just my memory. Because uh, <laughs> I've done several interviews. It's funny. I get, uh, you know, I get interviewed about Chuck Taylor. You know, Chuck Taylor is the gift that keeps on giving in a way as far as uh, my writing career goes. In a good sense. You know, there's a bad sense of that word, but I mean it in, in a good way. Uh, what surprise, you know, my son, one of my sons asked me a similar question. He said, do you feel that you know Chuck? I mean, like, like you actually really knew him, you know, like you ran with him, you know, like you were friends, contemporaries, you know, contemporaneous Mm -hmm. lived together. Uh, was he that real to you? Uh, the somewhat similar question you're asking because uh, he was special. Cause, and I remember asking t- my son, yeah, I, I just have that feeling. My relationship to Chuck Taylor is different than other people in history. Because, I did, yeah, I just feel like I know him. I, feel, I was there at some of these places with him. 
you know, clearly I wasn't. Uh-huh. But uh, it, it 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 moved from it was it was never fiction, so it's, I mean, well, some of it was fiction, but that was Chuck's doing. Uh, but it, it it moved from the realm of history to almost reality, you know, in my life or my personal history. It was, it was interesting how that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's happened with a couple of other projects I've been on, which uh, when I really identify with the person, you know, identify, it's not that I'm the same as that person, but identify, yeah, that, that's, you know, part of my story, part of my history, part of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was special about him, uh, that he could just invent himself. You know, it's common to use the term, uh, somebody has to reinvent themselves. You know, they're, they're down in the dumps. Uh, they have to reinvent themselves. They have a, uh, something bad happens in their career. Uh, something bad happens in their life. They have to reinvent themselves. They're out of vogue. They're out of fashion. They have to reinvent themselves. Uh, he invented himself from the get-go. I mean, uh, uh, he wanted to go, you know, he wanted to play basketball, you know, right out of high school. He did it. He did it. It's like a kid wanted to join the circus. When I was a kid, I said, yeah, that's great. I'm going to run away and join the circus. <laughs> I, 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 wanna, I want to, you know, a carny, you know, to be a carny, a guy who operates a carnival, gets to, go street, gets, to put up, gets to put up the roller coaster, the Ferris wheel, and then move to another town. I want to do that. I was maybe seven years old, but, you know, that was great. That was great, you know. Well, Chuck was a guy who did run away and join the circus, in some mm-hmm. way, which, which basketball was at the time. That was great. And then uh, becomes a salesman. I said, when I was, the only reason I went to college because I really didn't want to go to college. I said, God, what am I going to do? Be a salesman? I'm not going to be a salesman. So uh, I don't want to, you're probably going to get more calls because some of your listeners are salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to say, what's wrong with being a salesman? You know, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's, it's like, I don't like talking people into something. You know, I don't want people slamming the door on me. You know, that's what's wrong with being a salesman. I mean, it's not that it's dishonorable or dishonest work in any way. It's, it's it's, it's really hard. It's hard. It's work. really hard. Uh, and it, it's punishing. You know, it's just punishing to your ego. You know, it just, just you know, it, it just makes your stomach churn sometimes. I can imagine, you know, it's like people spitting on your face, spitting on your face, at least metaphorically speaking. But Chuck invented himself. I mean, just like, I don't know if he was just such an optimistic guy, such a personable guy, but unfazed. I mean, he could just do it, you know. And he did it. So I, I guess that, that was the most impressive thing about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Abe, do you write? And, uh, yeah, go ahead. He was a, he was a ladies' man. You know, I, I guess I'm jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> do you do any uh, – are, are you writing anything else? Have you written anything else lately, well, working on uh, anything? Uh, on a very personal level, I did some – not genealogy, but uh, – my father, long since deceased, and my older brother, long since deceased, uh, were, were Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. Holocaust wow. survivors. And they were both treated psychiatrically after coming to America. Uh, uh, my father was committed uh, from 1950 to 1952. So I learned this. I did some research. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, my parents were divorced young, and I hardly knew my father. I hardly remembered him. But he was committed to a state hospital in New York. And I said, you know what? I want to get the records. Screw it. I want to see what happened to him. I wanted to see what happened to him. And my oldest brother, who I knew a little better, better uh, speaking of the Air Force, he had joined the Air Force, but he was released uh, after six months. Uh, there were psycho- psychiatric problems. Uh, English was his second language, but he joined up in the 1950s. Uh, and he was committed several times to a, uh, a psychiatric hospital in Illinois, 
hmm. where we lived at the time. And I wanted to find out what happened to them. Uh, this was prompted in part by an article I read about uh, uh, the mental health of Holocaust survivors, the mental hmm. health of Holocaust survivors. So I said, well, they're talking about my father and my brother. So I tried to get records there. And uh, I've written up, I've worked up something, worked up essentially an essay, but it's very memoir-like. Mm-hmm. And a British, a couple of people, you know, so I sent it off to some suitable publications. And I'm waiting to hear from some of them. But one was a British uh, psychiatric journal in Britain, from Great Britain, United Kingdom. And uh, they're a radical psychiatric uh, association, but they're, they're, they're composed of psychiatrists. I mean, they're professionals and, and psychologists and mental health professionals. But uh, it's kind of a radical organization. They're against the uh, regular establishment. And uh, uh, they liked it, and they wanted me to revise it. So I'm working on a revision mm-hmm. of what I wrote. And it has to be shorter. You know, it'll be a journal article, not a book. I don't have mm-hmm. enough for a book. Well, Abe, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me and to talk about Chuck Taylor and uh, it's been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful 90 plus minutes. I, I, I can't thank you enough. So how do you close out a podcast like this about a guy who really didn't have a spectacular career on the basketball court as a player, rather a terrific career as a salesman? I guess we'll do it by talking about his most notable accolades. He designed the basketball shoe that the U.S. Olympic basketball team wore for decades from the 1930s through the 1960s. His Converse basketball yearbook was published yearly through the 1980s. More than 100 million pairs of Converse All-Stars, Chuck Taylors, are sold every year. In 1958, Chuck Taylor was inducted into the Sporting Goods Hall of Fame. In 1969, Chuck Taylor was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. In 1989, Chuck Taylor was inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. What more can you say? Chuck Taylor made an imprint on the game, an imprint that is still felt today. I'd like to thank Abe Amador for being our guest on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. You can find his book, Chuck Taylor All-Star, the true story of the man behind the most famous athletic shoe in history on the Indiana University Press website. That's iupress.indiana.edu. Or you can order his book online anywhere you order your books. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk with Mark Speck, who wrote a terrific book about a most dysfunctional team from the very short-lived World Football League, the Detroit Wheels. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.